My topic this morning is don't worry. Now, I have never actually heard this song, but I guess a few years ago there was a song called Don't Worry, Be Happy. And uh, my little granddaughter, who was then, I think, two years old, had learned the song, as children two years old can't help learning almost anything they hear, and that's a good hint for you mothers of young children, because your children can learn almost miraculously fast, you see to it that you stuff their heads with something that's worth learning, like the scriptures and scripture songs and things like that. But little Colleen had learned that song, and she learned it with the accent of the man who sang it. And I'm told (laughs) that I think he was Indian or something, but at any rate, her father, who's a minister, was entertaining a visitor in the living room, and the visitor had come because he was in deep trouble. And little Colleen wandered into the living room, saw this man looking very sorrowful, and she planted herself in front of him, and she said, Don't worry. Be happy. (laughs) Well, there is no more useless piece of advice (laughs) if you're not a Christian than don't worry. What earthly good does it do to tell somebody not to worry? It is natural, it is human to worry. Just last week, two weeks ago, I guess it was now, I've forgotten, um, many of you probably have been to Scroon Lake, and you, many of you hear Jack Wurtzen, whose program comes on right after mine at 6.30 in the morning. You've heard him say, Hi, everybody, this is Jack Wurtzen, speaking to you from high, high, high up in the Adirondacks. And one day he said, Hi, everybody, this is Jack Wurtzen, speaking to you from high, high, low down in Florida. Anyway, Jack Wurtzen has 35 camps all over the world. One of them's over here in New York, and we were over there a couple of weeks ago. And there was a women's conference, and there was a lady in an orange sweater. I have no idea what her name is, but she came to me at the book table and obviously was in deep sorrow. And she began to cry almost as soon as she spoke to me. And she said, my husband has left me and has gone into a satanic cult. And next week, my four-year-old son is going to be in court And he is going to be the one to make the decision as to whether he is going to go with his father or with me. And as I was telling Lars about that, he said, what kind of a world do we live in where a four-year-old is given that kind of a legal choice? Would you worry if you were the lady in the orange sweater? She was devastated. And she said, Elizabeth, will you pray for me? And of course I prayed and prayed that the Lord would deliver that child from the satanic cult and that God would certainly also deliver her husband from that. But how can we keep from worrying? There's not one person in this room that doesn't have something to worry about if you really think about it. A lot of you don't even need to think about it. With <laughs> You know you've got all sorts of things, which, again, humanly speaking, naturally speaking, are good reasons for worrying. But has anybody here ever in your whole born life discovered that worrying helped in any way whatsoever? Does it accomplish anything other than to make you miserable 
and to make everybody that has to live with you miserable if they have to hear about it all the time. Now, who can remember what you were worrying about on Tuesday morning? If you can remember, would you put your hand up and tell us about it? I mean, Tuesday's not that long ago. Yes, what were you worrying about? Your biology test. When did you take the test? Did the worrying help? No. But see, nobody else in the room you can even remember what you were worrying about. And if you could remember it and you look back, you realize that it didn't do any good. And if it was something that you were worrying about that happened, that was to happen on Wednesday or Thursday, it's already over with and maybe it didn't happen at all. If you actually kept a list of the things you worry about, you'd probably discover that an awful lot of them, uh, probably the majority of them, never do happen. So the question that I'm always asking myself and asking people as I travel around, and you've probably heard me ask this on the radio, is what kind of a difference does Jesus Christ make in your life? Think about that. Does it make a difference from Monday to Saturday? Or are you a one day a week kind of a Christian? You go to church and you go through the motions and you sing all the songs and you do the prayers and you go to Sunday school and you do all those things that a good Christian is supposed to do. But when it comes right down to the nitty gritty, to that thing which is about to break your heart or empty your hands or break up your home or ruin your job, does Jesus Christ make a difference? Yes, he does. And if I were to pin you down and say, what kind of a difference does he make? I would hope that all of you would be able to think of something really specific that has made a difference in your life. Now, there are five ways, and they're all wrapped up in two little verses in the book of Philippians, in which Jesus Christ ought to make a difference in every one of our lives. And one of them is embodied in the two words of the title of this talk. How many of you have already forgotten what the title of this talk is? <laughs> My goodness. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. In this particular translation, it says, The Lord is near. Have no anxiety. Have no anxiety, which is another way of saying don't worry. But he goes on now to give us five reasons why you don't need to have any anxiety. And they're reasons that the world knows absolutely nothing about. You see, Christians are people whose lives don't make any sense except in terms of another world. Right? Not very long ago, I was speaking someplace not too far from here, and one of the questions that was asked of me after the talk was, how can I explain my desire to be a foreign missionary to my non-Christian parents. How can I make that make sense to them? And I said, you can't. Why would it make any sense to non-Christians that somebody would want to throw their lives away, give up all the opportunities of comfort and career and all the rest of it, and bury themselves, let's say, in some jungle someplace or some inner city in India or something like that? What possible reason could you give to a non-Christian why you'd want to do that? So I said, you know, Christians are peculiar people. Christians are people to whom the world looks and scratches its head and says, you know, what is it with this crowd? 
You know, why in the world would a bunch of women give up all the stuff that every one of you women has to do on a Saturday morning? And it does take elaborate arrangements for you to get here. If you're housewives, God knows what you have to do. And if you have a job and Saturday's the only day you get off, then I'd hate to think how many things you have to try to catch up with on Saturdays. What possible reason there is? You didn't come here just for the bagel. <laughs> you could have had that at home, right? But there are five reasons here that make the kind of a difference that we're talking about. Paul doesn't just say, don't worry, period, case closed. He tells us why not. But in everything, make your requests known to God. And in one word, that means what? Pray. In how many things? You know, George Mueller, that great Englishman, who founded orphanages in England and had literally thousands of children to provide for every day for whom he had no money except from God. George Mueller said, if you receive a parcel in the mail and you can't untie the knot on the string, pray about it. Now, I often have people ask me questions about prayer and say, well, surely you're not going to pray about finding a parking space. How many of you have never prayed about finding a parking space? (laughs) Of course you do. Oh, but is almighty God who runs the galaxies interested in whether I find a parking place or whether I can untie a knot on a package? Is he interested? Yes. Yes. Yes, he is. And Paul knew that, too. He says, in everything, make your requests known to God. Now, the word request means that you are asking someone who can do something about something to do something for you. And the answer could be yes, or it could be no. It could be wait. But it is a request. And so when I pray, I don't always know that the thing I'm praying about makes sense in terms of what God wants to do in my life. And very often we are asking for a stone when we think what we're asking for is bread. And the Bible tells us that God doesn't want to give us stones He wants to give us bread. So if what I'm asking for that looks like bread really is a stone and God knows it's a stone, then his answer is going to be no. And I must not get upset with God and think, oh, well, he doesn't love me. You know, poor little me. You know, so-and-so, she gets all her prayers answered and she's so wonderful and she's got all these gifts and she gets to do this and that and go all these places and all these wonderful things. But I guess I'm behind the door. God doesn't pay any attention to me. We get very petulant and very sorry for ourselves and we sink into a swamp of self-pity and we hear all this nonsense that the world is giving us about poor self-image and all this kind of stuff when the truth is that the reason God said no is because he loves you if you love your child you are going to say no right if your little three-year-old says, Mommy, can I have another popsicle? And you say, you've already had two popsicles this afternoon. We're going to have supper in half an hour. Your answer is going to be no. And what's the child going to say? You never let me have anything. <laughs> and who talks like that? We do. That's the way we talk to God. You never let me have anything. If you started keeping a prayer notebook, and ladies, I have to confess, I have never kept a prayer notebook until about two years ago I started. Just a little tiny spiral notebook from the dime store. And you just put down in the briefest form the things you pray about. And I certainly don't do this every day. I don't have time to do it every day. If I did it, if I put down everything I pray about, there'd be about a thousand things on every day's page. But 
if you do it three days a week and put only one percent of the prayers you pray, you will be amazed when you go back through that book and see the prayers that you'd completely forgotten you ever prayed that God has answered, and you never even think about thanking him because you didn't remember that you'd prayed about it. If your memories is even half as bad as mine, you've probably forgotten a lot of them. So the point I'm making is here, when we make our requests, let's remember that many of God's greatest mercies are his refusals. And he refuses some of our prayers for the same reason that he died for us, because he loves us. And he does not want to give us what he knows will destroy us or what he knows will lead to a snare. So Paul says, don't worry. Number one, because you have a place to go, you have someone to go to in prayer. In everything, make your requests known to God in prayer and petition with what? Thanksgiving. Now, what am I supposed to tell the lady in the orange sweater to thank God for in this horrible situation? Well, first of all, for himself. That she does have someone to whom to go. Number two, that she is allowed to go to him. Number three, that he hears her. Number four, that he loves her. Number five, that he can do something about it. Number six, that he loves that little boy more than she does. Number seven, that even if God lets that little boy choose his father, God's not finished with him. When the worst thing you can imagine happens, and that poor lady, was, she was just pleading with me to say to her, God will not let that happen. Now, see, I can't say that. Could I say, when my husband Jim went into savage Indian territory, God will not allow him to be killed? I prayed that he wouldn't. But I couldn't say he will not allow that to happen because he did let John the Baptist get his head chopped off, didn't he? He did allow Stephen to be stoned to death. Where was God when wicked men nailed his son to the cross? He does allow evil in this world, but he's not finished with us. So there are a lot of things you can thank God for. In everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, and if there's one thing that certainly is not going to make any sense to a non-Christian, is giving thanks in the midst of trouble and suffering. Anybody here ever had the experience of finding the whole weather of your soul change by giving thanks? It is amazing how transfiguring Thanksgiving can be. You're wondering what these five ways are. I'll give you four of them, which begin with P's, so you ought to be able to remember them. One is the presence of God. We wouldn't be able to pray if it weren't for the presence of God. And he is wherever we are. We don't have to try to get ourselves to a church in order to kneel down in order to pray. You can pray while you're driving the car. And for heaven's sakes, keep your eyes open. And the Bible says, watch and pray. And I read a lovely story of a missionary named James O. Fraser, who was uh, a missionary in China, a very well-known missionary in the western mountains of the tribal people of China, and he made uh, he had a week at the headquarters of the mission, which was in Shanghai at the time. There was a very great man that was the head of the mission. His name was Mr. Host. And as Mr. Fraser and Mr. Host were spending a day together in prayer, Mr. Fraser was earnestly praying, and then when he finished, Mr. Host was praying, and Mr. Fraser, who had his eyes closed, praying along with Mr. Host, suddenly was rather surprised to hear the clink of a teacup. 
And so he sneaked a peek and saw that while Mr. Host was praying, he was also pouring himself a cup of tea. And he thought, well, if this spiritual giant can pour himself a cup of tea and pray at the same time, there is no time in the world when you can't be praying. So the presence of God, that's the first P. The second one is prayer, This the privilege of prayer. The third is God's power. Remember that God can take care of that situation. God is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. There is nothing too difficult for God. He can change that unchangeable person in your life. And some of you live with extremely difficult people. Is that because I hear some amens? (laughs) I won't ask you to tell us about them, but God knows how difficult it is. Now, that may seem like the most impossible thing in the world that you're asking, that God will change the heart of that person. It's not too difficult, and he wants you to come to him. He wants you to pray, because you know what? God has arranged a universe in which there are a lot of things that will never happen unless you pray, because God has given us the responsibility to pray. Now, is there anyone here whose dishes God has ever washed? Don't you wish he would sometimes? Wouldn't you just love to go home now and find that all the laundry's done or all the dishes are washed and nobody was in the house while you were gone and that God did it? Now, God doesn't do that. God gives you a pair of hands and he gives you the hot water and the soap and the dishpan and the dishes and he gives you the work to do and you've got to do the work. But there are a whole lot of things that you can't do and we cannot change people. We can ask God to change ourselves and we can change a lot of things in ourselves. I had a letter that I read just this morning from one of my radio listeners I'm reading through a whole pile of letters on this trip down from where we live in Magnolia here and back again. I'll be reading them. And one of these letters, a lady asked me to pray that she would start jogging again. (laughs) What does she expect God to do? (laughs) Put on the shoes? Get herself out of the chair and blow her out the door? What does she expect God to do? All I can do is write back to the poor lady and say, get yourself out there and jog. (laughs) But prayer does a whole lot of things. It moves heaven and earth. Prayer is a power that God has given to you and me, which he expects to work through and in participation with. In other words, he's given us the privilege of working with him. And one of the loveliest things that I watch in my daughter's home when I have a chance to visit her in California and my grandchildren is to watch how she is training her children to work with her. And if a mother doesn't take the time and the trouble, and it takes a lot of time and trouble and patience, to teach a little child to participate and work with the parent, for heaven's sakes, how do you expect when you get to be, when the child gets to be 16 years old, to teach him to take responsibility? And I get letters from distraught mothers and fathers saying, what are we going to do with this no good teenager? He won't work. They're starting about 12 years too late. But it takes patience. And teaching, and God is patient, endlessly patient with you and me. He teaches us, but he says, this is the job for you to do about this thing that I want to do, but I am not going to do this all by myself. I want you to pray. Have no anxiety about anything. What a colossal waste of time and energy 
when we worry. It takes a lot of energy. It takes calories. But you could be working down on your knees. Get down on your knees. I don't know if any of you were at the Billy Graham crusade in Central Park last fall, but my husband and I had the great privilege of being there. And Johnny Cash was one of those on the platform. And Johnny Cash sang that great old song, The Old Account Was Settled, by and by, long ago, or something like that. And the refrain, and June was up next to Johnny, and every time he'd come to that phrase, the old account was settled long ago, June would come in with, down on my knees, <laughs> down on my knees. And I heard June say one time that before she married Johnny, you know, he was in a terrible mess. He was a drug addict and everything else, and he had given such a beautiful testimony there that day with the Billy Graham crusade. But she said, I wore out the floor. I wore out the floor on my knees praying for that man and June is the one that prayed Johnny out of that addiction and Johnny married her and I think she's one of the ones that, certainly one of many who has prayed for him but she he has never become addicted again he's had some terrible struggles because he's had to have medication and I had heard the rumor that he'd gone back to being a drug addict and it is not true he has had medication and his struggles have been increased because of it but he still has that shining testimony in that day he said I never found peace in drugs. I never found satisfaction in alcohol. Jesus Christ changed my life. Cooperation with God is the work that God gives us in prayer. The presence of God, the power of God to change people. Prayer, the work that God gives to you and me to do. And then here's one that's not a P. Thanksgiving must go along hand in hand. And that's the thing that we forget most easily when we're in the midst of big trouble, when we're down in the bottom of the barrel, we forget to thank the Lord. So in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And then, what is the result? That wonderful verse 6, 7 it is, isn't it? And the peace of God, which is beyond our utmost understanding, will keep guard over your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. If you think of the holiest people you know, the most Christ-like people you know, surely one of the outstanding characteristics is peace. And I doubt that you know very many people who are not Christians, whose lives exhibit peace. It's a very short commodity these days. Everybody is desperate. Everybody's frantic. Everybody is fearful and guilty and angry and all you have to do is drive on the highways anywhere around and just watch the way people drive and someone has said the, the way you live is the way you drive the way you drive is the way you live if you drive angrily and aggressively and impatiently and frantically you've seen people just going taking the most outrageous risks on the highway in order to make one car length. You know, for what? You know, where are they going that makes that much difference? But the peace of God ought to be the characteristic of our lives. And the older I get, and if you listen to my program, you know how old I am. How old am I? 65. Thank you. Here's a 
loyal listener. Well, I'm officially old this year, and I'm grateful for that, and I absolutely refuse to get a facelift or dye my hair or anything else because I think being old is a gift from God, and I just love it. But the older I get, the more I realize if anybody asks me, what have you learned in your old age? I certainly hope that I have learned at least one lesson, which is that there is nothing to worry about. There is absolutely nothing to worry about. Because he's got the whole world where? In his hands. And he's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He knows the end from the beginning. If I'm afraid of tomorrow, all I have to do is remember God's already there. God's already there. If my past bugs me, remember the past belongs to God. The past belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. The future belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. What do I have to worry about at this particular moment at 25 minutes to 11 on a Saturday morning? Right this minute. It's only this minute that God has given us. Now, who is it that's writing this seemingly outrageous thing? The world would think it's crazy. It's the Apostle Paul. And where was he? In prison, chained between two guards. 24 hours a day in what was undoubtedly a miserable, cold, maybe wet, cockroach-filled, rat-filled dungeon. Never a minute's privacy. Two guards chained to both sides of him. And here he is saying, don't worry about anything. Now, Paul had not only been imprisoned, Paul had been shipwrecked. He had been flogged. He had been imprisoned many times. He had been stripped. He had been hungry. And on top of all that, he said, I have the care of all the churches. Talk about the burdens that God lays on parents, which are heavy. Paul was a spiritual mother and father. You know, Paul even used maternal language when he said, I travail in birth till Christ be formed in you. He said, I have been gentle among you as a nurse. But he was also very stern. But with all those sufferings, and it was Paul who wrote in Second Corinthians These little troubles, which are really so transitory, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He's using a metaphor of the old-fashioned scales, you know, the kind that have an arm and two pans hanging down from that arm. Well, you put all your troubles, every nasty word that's ever been said to you, every unforgivable sin that's ever been committed against you, every loss, put that all on one side. And it will look like lead to you. You put the weight of glory that Paul talks about in that same passage on the other. And what will happen? That lead will look like feathers compared to the weight of glory that God is offering to us. That's the one who's writing. And Paul understands. In fact, Paul even speaks of his own anxiety. I just came across that verse this morning. I think it's in Second Corinthians someplace where he's referring to the anxiety that he felt for some of these Christians that he was responsible for. So it isn't as though Paul has gotten beyond it. Paul is just telling us just exactly what I'm trying to tell you today. You're not looking at somebody who never worries about anything. But I'm certainly telling you, I know it's absurd. I know it's useless. I know it's foolish. And I also know that it's forbidden. We're not allowed to worry. So we've just got to cut it out, quit it, case closed, stop. And Paul knew that. We had word last night from a dear friend who has four little children and this lady's in the hospital. Did she have legitimate worries? Certainly, humanly speaking, yes. 
but she knew that the Lord was in charge. Last week, I had word from my oldest brother that his wife has cancer. And to each of these people, I have to say something. You know, what are you going to say when you're called upon to go and visit somebody who's in trouble, to go to a funeral when somebody's lost the most important person in their lives? What are you going to say, especially if you have bought into the prosperity gospel that tells you everything's going to be fine, you know? God wants you to be rich and God wants you to be healthy and all that. God wants some people to be rich and he wants most people to be healthy. But he does say no. My second husband died of cancer. We prayed for physical healing. Of course. I'm told to make my requests known to God. It was my request. Lord, please heal him. I need him. Valerie needs a stepfather. She had never known her own father. She was only 10 months old when he died. She was thrilled to have a stepfather. He was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And so I said, Lord, the seminary needs him. If you don't think I need him, and if you don't think Valerie needs him, well, certainly the seminary needs him. And what about the church in which he was a leader? They need him. And God's answer was no. And of course, we ask, why? And he says, trust me. Trust me. I do know what I'm doing. When you see the whole pattern unrolled, you will be just thunderstruck to discover why I had to say no here in order to do this and this and this and this, not only for you, but a thousand things for other people that I would not be able to do if I didn't say no to your prayers. Think of a simple human illustration. How often, if you're going to have an outdoor picnic, would you ask God to make it a nice day? Or if your daughter's going to get married and wants to have a garden wedding, you're certainly going to pray for nice weather. But it may be much more important to give the rain on that day for the people who are whose live, livelihood depends on the crops. So God has a whole world, a whole universe that he is orchestrating and choreographing and arranging and engineering. Do you think maybe he knows a little bit more than you do about what's good for you? Do you know a little bit more than your three-year-old what's good for him? Why do I have to take a nap? Well, you can't explain all the physiological reasons. You just say, because I said so. Well, why can't I have another popsicle? It will spoil your supper. No, it won't spoil my supper. You don't argue. You simply tell him the truth. This is what I want you to do. And so we need to have confidence in God. When we worry, we're really abandoning ourselves to fear, aren't we? It's rather enlightening to stop and think how much of your life is governed by fear. And the opposite of fear is faith. They're diametrical opposites. They are mutually exclusive. You cannot be trusting God and be afraid at the same time. The psalmist says, when I am afraid, then I will trust. He is deciding to exchange his fear for faith. Now get it straight, ladies. That is not a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. It is a decision. It's very confusing when we start thinking that faith is some kind of a mood that you work yourself into. You know, you feel good about God. You feel comfortable with yourself. Everything's okay. And so now I happen to have strong faith because I really believe that God's going to answer this prayer the way I want it answered. Now that is psychological gymnastics. You're just trying to drum up feelings in yourself that God is going to do so and so. God is always going to do the very best thing in the world for you if you pray about it, if you trust him. But that is not necessarily the thing that you're asking him for. So you, with the psalmist, when you, the minute you feel fearful, then you can say, what time I am afraid, I will trust. 
I love that verse because it brings emotion and decision into the same verse. Fear is an emotion. Faith is a decision. What time I am afraid, I will trust. Trust is confidence in God. If a doc, if you know someone, if you have someone very ill in your family and they haven't been able to diagnose it and it looks extremely serious and finally the doctor walks in and he says, I know exactly what's wrong and I know exactly what to do about it. You would immediately pin your confidence in that person. He's not omnipotent and he is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything and he is not all powerful. But we're coming to one who is. He not only is powerful and capable and wise, but he loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he's saying, will you trust me? You remember when he was in the boat with the disciples and they got into this terrible squall and they went panicking to the stern of the ship where Jesus was doing what? He was sound asleep with his head on a pillow in the midst of this storm and they shook him and woke him up and they said, Master, doesn't it even matter to you that we are perishing? And of course, they weren't perishing. They were panicking. <laughs> and he got up and he simply spoke to the wind and to the waves and there was a complete calm and he turned to the disciples and he said, Why are you so afraid? Well, because it was a big storm. There is evil in the world. There are storms. There are tragic things that happen. But what is the difference that Jesus Christ makes? He's in the boat. He's in the boat with us. So perfectly in harmony with his father that he can go to sleep with his head on a pillow in the midst of the storm. And he looks at these disciples who had walked and talked and eaten and slept with him intimately for several years. Those who should have known him the best. And he says to them, why are you so afraid? Anxiety can force us to do anything to avoid an evil. But instead of trying to avoid the evil, take the evil, lift it up into the presence of God and say, Lord, here is this situation. It scares me. I can't change it. Lord, you see the whole thing from the end and the beginning. Now, Lord, I commit it into your hands. You know, it just helps me so much. The minute anything disturbing happens, the least little disturbance, just stop, lift it up into the presence of God and say, Lord, here it is. Even if it's as silly a little thing, relatively speaking, as the washing machine breaking down. In everything. In everything. So instead of confronting the evil itself and putting all your attention on this terrible thing, this poor lady in the orange sweater, all she can see is this satanic cult, these awful things that are going on in her husband's life and this poor little four-year-old, if he chooses to go with his father, it'll just be the end of the world. She's looking at the evil, feeling as though there is nothing that can be done about it. The evil seems to be omnipotent, all-powerful. But she takes that and she lifts that whole impossible situation up to him for whom nothing is impossible. Anxiety itself inflicts a much heavier burden on us than the evil itself. It's a burden we were never meant to bear. We're not created to bear that kind of a burden. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are tired and overburdened, and I will give you rest. But we have to take his yoke upon us, learn of him, become gentle and humble in heart, and we will find rest. Take my yoke, he says, and he will lay a burden on the back of our necks 
which is liked by comparison with the burden of that evil and the burden of our anxiety. And I've found that to be true. Sometimes I come home from a big trip and I think, oh, Lord, this pile of mail on the kitchen counter, all these phone calls, all this backup of work. And I have to confess that once in a while I just simply get down on my knees and say, Lord, I give you all that burden and I will take your yoke. And I just sort of, you know, physically do this just to remind myself I am taking the yoke of Jesus, which is light. And you will find rest for your souls. And the peace of God that Paul speaks about here, which he lived in even in the midst of that prison. The peace which is beyond our utmost understanding. Now, for most of us, we can understand most of the peace that we've ever had because it had something to do with circumstances. You can feel very peaceful when you're sitting by a lake in the moonlight and feeling good. But that's not the peace that passes understanding. When Lars and I look out at the seagulls in the midst of a storm, you know, they just ride those crashing waves as if nothing had changed in their lives, just perfectly calm. And you see a wave crash, as it did in that storm back in October, which was spectacular, and you think that's the end of that seagull. You're never going to see him come back out of that (laughs) tremendous explosion of water, and there he is just sitting there. Nothing's changed. Peace that passes understanding. The remedy for fear is to concentrate on God, not on the evil. Confront the evil with God. Or confront God with the evil. One way or another. Lift it up. Look at it in the light of your eternal salvation. That's what God's interested in. He wants to make a saint out of every one of you. And he has to take us barbarians and turn us into saints. And then repeat Jesus' own words of prayer. If it be possible, let this cup pass. But if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Don't worry. Remember that he is here. He has given us his presence. He has given us the knowledge of his power. He has given us the privilege of prayer He has told us to be thankful. And if we obey him, the reward is thanksgiving. I just came across the story behind a poem that I've been quoting for years. It was William Cullen Bryant, who lived in Massachusetts back in 1815. He was walking along very worried about his own career. He was hoping to get a position in a law firm and not didn't know where he was going to find this job. And as he walked along, it was a beautiful sunset, and he saw a water bird fly, a single water bird, flew across the horizon, silhouetted against the sun. And he wrote, there is a power whose care teaches thy way along the pathless coast, the desert and illimitable air, lone wandering, but not lost. Thou art gone, he says to the bird, the abyss of heaven hath swallowed up thy form, yet on my heart deeply has sunk the lesson thou hast given and shall not soon depart. He who from zone to zone guides through the boundless sky thy certain flight in the long way that I must tread alone will guide my steps aright. God bless you.